not sure I introduced myself last time, but I'm Stuart Starr. I'm the lead pastor here at New Life. Uh, it's going to be my joy to consider uh, Jesus' great claim here to be the light of the world. I'm going to ask that God would help us do that, and I'd ask you to join with me in prayer. Incidentally, Alec, I said amen at the end of your prayer. I'm not sure how many others did. I thought it was a great prayer. I was really encouraged, mate, so thank you. Um, let us pray together and ask for God's assistance. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we have this time set aside in our week. Help our hearts, our minds, and our ears to be open now. Father, would you be at work here tonight by your Holy Spirit, taking this word and challenging our assumptions, changing us to be more like Jesus. And Lord, help us tonight, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, I wanted to, uh, to start tonight with a great claim, a great claim. I think this is probably one of those claims that not everybody would make, but a certain man did make. Uh, does anyone know what the claim is that this man made? Well, first of all, who is he? Muhammad Ali, did someone say Cassius Clay? <laughs> okay, very good. That's a, that's a good discussion in its own right. Uh, a boxer under two different names. Uh, and what did he say? What was his great claim? I'm the greatest. Absolutely. He said, I'm the greatest. In fact, here's the quote. I love it. I am the greatest. I shook up the world. I'm the prettiest thing that ever lived. That's pretty good, isn't it? I'm the prettiest thing that ever lived. Now, I think that's, that's a pretty straightforward, arrogant claim, isn't it? At one level, he'd beaten up everyone who stood in his way, and so he was claiming, I'm the greatest. But he wasn't really saying, I'm the greatest at hand-stitching, was he? I'm the greatest rally driver that ever lived. I'm the greatest at hand-making pasta. He wasn't saying any of those things. When he said, I'm the greatest, he really was in a very defined sense, probably in the side of that ring, actually. He was the greatest in the ring at that point, right? Now, we, we have developed a, uh, a way of boasting, which I, I think is really interesting. So we, we would never do the Muhammad Ali, I'm the greatest. But there is a kind of thing that we're, we're developing at the moment. I, I saw this cartoon, I thought it was pretty cute. Uh, so... Uh, the, the quote is, ah, these moon boots are so hard to walk in. Okay, so the idea is, how many people get to complain about moon boots? I think it's 17 people in the world have been on the moon. Is it 17? It might not be. Sorry? 12. Sorry, yes, I should be all over that. And they would be matching pairs because you can't fit more than that into the descent module. So you're right, Graham. Good. Okay, 12. Okay. So only 12 people. But what a great complaint, Right? Oh, moon boots, they're so hard on your feet, you know? Do you know? Oh, you don't know. You're not one of only 12 people out of 8 billion who've ever stood on the moon. Oh, poor you. Sorry? He's holding an iPhone so he can tweet it, Caro. That's exactly the point, right? Well spotted. Okay, so here's the thing, Caro. That's beautiful. Here's their segue into uh, social media. So the, uh, the, the thing is called a humble brag. Have you guys heard of this? The humble brag? Um, I really like this, uh, this Venn diagram. Uh, so the Venn diagram has at the top in orange, complaining, in blue, bragging. And the crossover is in the humble brag area. Do you see this? And then there's this other bit over there, which was green when I put it on the computer. I'm not sure what it looks like on the screen up there. But it's actually being humble. And there is no crossover whatsoever between the humble brag and actually being humble. I think that's a very helpful diagram. Uh, mostly about complaining and bragging. 
Uh, so when you see your friends do that, you can just do a little hashtag, humble brag, and they should laugh and then they should stop. And, and if it's you and you feel like you need to attach a humble brag to it, just don't post it. That would be my encouragement uh, to you. Now, here's a great statement. It's a great statement that was read for us just before uh, by Darren. It's a great statement. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He said, I am the light of the world. I think it's fair for us tonight to consider, that's pretty arrogant, isn't it? That's pretty arrogant. I am the light of the world. Now, Jesus didn't have boxing gloves on. He was probably standing somewhere in the temple as he said, I am the light of the world. But I, I, I think we're so used to being in church that we almost miss how arrogant this sounds. So let me point out to you why I think it sounds arrogant. I am the light of the world. What, what makes that arrogant? Here's an opportunity to engage with me if you would like to. What makes that say, why is that particularly arrogant? I'm the light of the world. What's he saying about himself? Sorry? He's excluding everybody else. How many lights of the world are there, according to Jesus at this point? Yeah, good, good answer, Owen. I see that. One. One is the answer, okay? He's saying, I am the light of the world. That is pretty arrogant. Or it's true, but we'll, we'll go at the moment for thinking about it as being arrogant. Okay, so I am the light. Now, he could be saying, I am the light of Luff Close in Oran Park. It's pretty dark in my little cul-de-sac. I'm the light, okay, in Luff Close. Is that what he's saying? He has a far grander claim, doesn't he? He says, I am the light of the, the world. He's saying this has impact for every human being who lives. Me being around is illuminating for, I don't know how many people were alive around the time of Jesus. Um, if you look at those uh, population growth things, there's probably, I don't know, a couple of million, I would assume, around the time of the Roman Empire. But right now today, Jesus is saying the same thing. So he's saying, I'm the light of, what are we up to? Seven billion people? Seven? Seven billion, really, 500. Okay, I reckon in the time that we're talking, Jeff, you, you added, uh, your family added one the other day. Grand, a grandchild arrived, so that's good. Okay, well, that number is going up all the time. But Jesus is making the great claim, I am the light of the world. That is a pretty extraordinary claim. I want to show you tonight that I don't think it's arrogant. I want, I want to show you tonight that I think it's true, but I want us to think through what would the objections be? What would the objections be to someone claiming to be the light of the world? I think that the, the place I'd start would be some of us, and, and maybe it's you, but, but some of the people that we know around us would be saying, but I'm not in the darkness. I, I'm not in the darkness. I'm, here I am walking, well, somebody's walking along a beach, right? But it's not, even, it's not even I'm not in the darkness. It's actually I'm not in any way darkened. I am a self-actualizing human being. I'm a person who's on top of it. I'm on top of my game, right? I'm smart, I'm employed, I'm earning money, I'm doing the things I want. I'm not in darkness. I want to suggest to you three ways that you and I and them might be in darkness. The first one has got to do with morals. Has anyone heard of morals before? I had a joke this morning with people. I said, I think morals has become a lost word. 
morals. What are your morals like? Who would ever ask a person such a question, right? We have lost any foundation for this concept. So what do we say as a world? As a world, we say, it's just not right. Or that's obviously true. Here's the interesting thing about people who say that's obviously true. They're generally disagreeing with someone, aren't they? Have you noticed this? The reason that someone says that's obviously true is because they're trying to make their point against someone who disagrees with them. Now, if it was obviously true, how much disagreement would there be? Oh, good answer, Zaki. Fantastic. Not much. There would not be much disagreement if it was obviously true. So here's the thing. It's probably not obvious, is it? What our world has decided is we've taken any ground for morals out, and so we just have opinions without any foundations. Opinions without foundations. And that's why whenever we have a discussion about morality in our world, what happens next is not just, oh, I can respect your difference of opinion. What happens in our public dialogue in Australia if you disagree with someone about morality? What gets thrown back at you? Your are what? Thank you, Darren. Yep. You're a bigot and a hater. And my response would be, why? Can you give me a moral foundation for the why? The answer is, oh, and we, we all have our own, don't we? A world that has no foundation for its morals is darkened, I would argue. What about life? If I said to you, what is the meaning of your life, what would you say? What's the meaning? What's the purpose of your life? And you go, well, it's very clear. I need to get educated. I need to get a mortgage. I need to make an attempt to pay off the mortgage. I need to keep enough credit card room free that I can have an expensive holiday that I'll then be paying off on top of my mortgage. And maybe if my kids get married and have grandkids, I can retire and the purpose of our lives has collapsed into a set of accumulating milestones. It's a pretty sad and sorry state. And if I was to say to you, what's the purpose of your life? You couldn't, generally, I don't think, say, what is the purpose of life? What is our life here for? And if you said something and I said to you, why, would you have an answer? We've lost the foundations. We don't have a why. And so this was my experience uh, following a four-wheel drive the other day. Uh, the Ned Kelly uh, hat on the back of the, um, the four-wheel drive and such is life was the motto on the back. And I'm thinking about this guy who's driving it in front of me. And I'm thinking, what are you saying about life? What's the, it was sort of emblazoned on, you've seen this sort of thing, yeah? Such is life. And I'm like, right. What does that tell me? What, what do I do differently tomorrow? How do I orientate my life? Is This is my great banner on my, on my four-wheel drive. What do I do? I don't know. And as I said this morning, if that was you, uh, very good. You can come and tell me uh, what it means uh, later on. I don't think that we have a great answer as a world to what the purpose of our life is. And then we get to death. And, uh, and I think this is, the, this is the area that I think we're most like children in our discussion. See, so, so what we say at funerals is, and, and I've taken a few, and, and Jeff has taken a few, but we sit in them as well. And when you sit in a funeral and you listen to the people who are not Jeff and I taking funerals, they say all sorts of stuff. 
they'd read poems and people come up the front and when they come up the front, they go, oh, he's a great bloke and, and, um, and I know that he's watching me right now and he's having a, a, a beer and, and I look at that and I say, do you believe it? Honestly, I know that's the thing that Australians now say about death, right? We all say it. Oh, they're up there watching me. And, and as, I, as, I, as I reflect on this, I go, why would they want to watch you? When did you become the most important and interesting thing? What, what, why do they want to watch you? And even if they are watching you, I would imagine sooner or later that would become a curse, wouldn't it? And I'm not just talking about picking your nose at the traffic lights or something. I mean, deadly seriously, imagine you were forced for perpetuity to watch the life of another. It's enough as parents, isn't it, to watch your kids make mistakes. Imagine if you're in some glass box compelled to watch your relatives make terrible life choices. It's an appalling joke. On top of that, I don't think anyone actually believes it. As an adult, if if I sit down with a real adult and I say, do you believe this is what is actually really happening? Metaphysically, you die and you sit in a glass box watching your relatives. Do you think that's what's happening? No one actually believes that. It's just rubbish. And people who don't know about morals, who don't know about life and can't say what happens after death, I would say, absolutely are walking in darkness. If you've got no foundation for your morals, no purpose for your life, and you don't know what happens after death, you are darkened. You really are in darkness. And here's another objection. The next objection is to say, all right, yeah, 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 all right, you've got something to say. Jesus has got something to say. But, but aren't all religions equal? Have you heard this one before? And so the great, the great claim is, I think it was from around the time of Buddha, actually, but uh, this story is that uh, in, a, in, in this room, there are six men with blindfolds on and they're trying to work out what the object is in front of them. And uh, one of them grabs, it's an elephant by the way, and they, one of them grabs it and says, I think it's a rope, right? The thing that is, that is here is a rope. And the other one says, oh, no, 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 it's a big round chair. The other one says, oh, I think it's kind of some sort of rubbery, papery stuff. The other one says, Oh, no, it's kind of like a vacuum cleaner. No, I didn't say that because it's an ancient story. But, you know, the trunk's there, right? And the idea is that every one of them has a strong opinion about what it is, but no one knows what it is. They only have a part of the truth. The trouble with telling this story is that the person who's saying that all religions are the same is saying that they're standing watching blind men and they can see that it's an elephant. Do you see how this works? The room is filled with blind people who are following all these different religions, who have part of the truth. But the person who tells this story is in some elevated position on a throne of great wisdom saying, ha ha, you all have some part of the truth. I can see that all religions are the same. Just between the two of us, that's incredibly arrogant. I alone in this room can see clearly and the rest of you are all holding different parts of an elephant. That's pretty dangerous stuff. But here's the thing, it's intellectually stupid as well, I would say. Because it's, it's not actually true to say all religions are the same. I think we can say all religions aren't equal right from the start. Here's the thing, uh, this week I was reading my, uh, my news feeds and one of them came up that in Mexico they were digging up a car park or something and they found this tower for the Aztecs in Mexico. 
And the tower was made out of cemented skulls, hundreds of cemented skulls that were built into this tower that was outside their temple. The, ta- the, the tower was made of skulls of men, women, and children who'd been offered in human sacrifice. That's a religion. We could go to ancient Rome and, and we could have gods who get drunk, have adulterous affairs, and fight and lie with one another. A whole pantheon of gods. Or we could go to Buddhism, where the aim is to destroy the sense of self so that there is no me to desire anymore. And if you were to put those three together with Islam that says there is only one God and Muhammad is his prophet, and say that they were all the same, you would be patently wrong, wouldn't you? Just say yes. They aren't in any way demonstrably the same. They just aren't. It's wrong. And so all religions aren't the same. But here's the other thing. If all religions are the same, are they all right or are they all wrong? See, sacrificing children to your detestable God, is that right? You can help me out with this one. It's not right, is it? So, but you've said all religions are the same. So your answer then is all religions are equally wrong. Or you've got Jesus who said, love your neighbor as yourself. And that's the same as child sacrifice. They're either all right or they're all wrong if they're all the same. Doesn't work out very well, does it? Could it be, though, at least intellectually possible, that one of them is right? You have to hold space for that, don't you? One of them could be right. One of them could be based in history. One of them could be verifiable. So here's the thing. When it comes to this, there's got to be at least some darkness in the world, doesn't there? If all religions aren't the same, there has to be some darkness floating around the joint. What about this? Haven't seen much light in the church. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. That's a great and bold claim. But the people who proclaim it, what's the church like? And we live in an environment, a a very terrible environment, where the Royal Commission has just been uncovering horrific things. I don't think there's any excuse for that. And I want to say straight away, that if someone would say to me, there's not much light in the church on the basis of the findings of the Royal Commission, I would say, it's an appalling, terrible disaster. There's no excusing it. There's no way to spin it. That these things were done in the name of Jesus is utterly unforgivable. And if you were to say, I'll never sit foot in a church because of the things that were done in the name of Jesus, I would say all of a sudden you start to have a problem. Because I would say you can't set foot anymore in a swimming club, in a scout association, in a school, in any number of institutions in our life, and more terribly than all of that, you'll never sit foot in a family home, will you? See, the real common denominator isn't church. The common denominator is actually human beings, power, and darkness. Human beings, power, 
and darkness. That's the common denominator. And so in this situation, I'd say there's actually darkness everywhere. There's darkness everywhere. Somebody could say, hey, aren't these Christians pretty terrible? Christians, after all, are a bunch of, you can tell me, a bunch of, it's happened the same this morning. You all know what you're supposed to say. We're all a bunch of uh, human beings is good, Zachy, but we generally go with hypocrites, right? So here's the thing. We, we know that we've been accused of being hypocrites, right? I, I think this one is, um, is really interesting. We fail. Now, let's, let's make that far more personally. I will fail. I will let you down, regrettably, and I'll work really hard not to, but I'll let you down. There'll be other people in this church who will let you down. We will fail, I hope, though, that you won't just see failure, but you'll see repentance. An attempt to say sorry, to restore, to fix. I think it's right to expect that the Christian church should behave in a better way because we're following a guy who claimed to be the light of the world. So you should expect good behavior from us. But I want to ask, with Jesus' wonderful words, uh, that he who has no sin can cast the first stone. It was just before where we read tonight in, uh, in John 8. Jesus said to, uh, to the people who wanted to stone the woman caught in adultery, he said, all right, no problems. Pick up your stones, everyone ready. Those who have no sin, you can cast the first stone. And, and devastatingly, what it says is, they began to leave one by one the older ones first. Why do you think it was the older ones first? Because they're the ones who have the self-insight to know, I've sinned. I can't be in the rock chucking area because if there are any rocks being chucked, they'd be thrown at me too. So here's the thing. In the end, we're all darkened. So this darkness, which is a pretty depressing kind of way to think, I think that sounds like real life. There is real darkness in our world and incredibly, somebody spoke about providing light. Isn't that wonderful? Somebody actually had the audacity to say, I want to bring light to this darkened world. In which case, I want to say thank you Thank you for bringing the light. Well, here's what we taught the kids, and I'll use that to bring home what we, said, what we said tonight. We said to the kids that the true problem is not having a bad hair day. So some of, some of us might say, look, I'm working really hard to be good. I'll be as good as I can possibly be until I mess up, you know, until I have a bad hair day. That's not the problem with this world. The true problem with this world, we told the kids, is that we have a black heart. We have a sin problem. In our hearts, we are sold as slaves to sin, is what it says a little bit later in John 8. That's our problem. Our problem is a heart problem. And because it's a heart problem, when we told the kids that there needs to be a true solution at this camp, it's not an oops, it's not, oh dear, I messed up again. Oops, I've done it again. It's not like that. We don't just need to have a little mopping up operation. What was needed to fix things up was actually a crucifixion. And if we think that's overkill, it's only because we underestimate the power of sin. The crucifixion is not overkill. It was exactly what was required to pay the price for my sin. The true solution required a crucifixion. The difference, if we take hold of what Jesus has done, Cam, I won't move because I heard you had six sheets of music on this uh, thing here. But, but if we get what Jesus has done, then he doesn't want to make you into people who come to church a lot. He doesn't even want to give you a new set of morals. He's not giving you churchianity. And I love this picture. 
It's wonderful, isn't it? I went for Sunday best. Did you come in your Sunday best tonight? Maybe we should have a theme night one night where we'll say, come in your Sunday best, okay? Which would be fun. Uh, so, but we're not calling you to look like a better, nicer family. We're not calling you to be a more moral individual. What God is offering you, the true difference, is actually something radical, a changed heart. That the seed of being made new, God will put in you. He'll wash you clean. He'll forgive you and set you free. Extraordinary offer. And we have a true hope. I'm going to take my grandmother's funeral on Thursday this week. I'm going to stand in a room with a whole bunch of people who are a lot closer to having their own funeral than you are because I'm going to retirement village to do it. And when I go there, I will not be peddling card hope. You know, open the card, read the couple of fluffy lines there. I won't be offering hope from a a card. I'll be offering hope from Jesus. I won't be offering pie in the sky. In fact, what I will be offering is I'll say uh, there is a home when we die. It'll actually, Jesus, the one who rose from the dead, the one who demonstrably was in history and is not in history anymore, the one who has no bones, the one whose tomb is empty, promises that we will have a home with him. He says, I'm coming back to take you to be with me. And that's what I'll preach. My great hope, my great hope. Jesus didn't come and say, I am a light in the world. He came and said, I am the light of the world. He said, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Tonight, that should be awesome news for us because I hope I've shown you there is darkness. And there is one who offers us the light, the true light. And he says, if we will follow him, we'll have the light of life. So what I want to offer you tonight, I want to say, come and do Jesus for the curious for me. If you've, if you've sat here tonight and you're like, I'm not sure whether that darkness thing checks out, but I'd like to think about Jesus again. Come do the course with me. Spend four weeks doing it. Four people already told me this morning they want to do it. Can't wait to do it with them. Join me. And if you're one of those people who've found the light, I want you to be the God person where you are. Bring God's light with you, where you are, into the darkness and say, I have not everything. I am not better than you, but I will bring light into the darkness and point you to the one who is the light of the world. Will you be the God person where you are when you go tomorrow? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, it's a pretty devastating view of the world to see the darkness. And yet, Lord, we have good hope Because at great cost, you sent your son to pay the price, to rise, to show it was done, to give us hope that we might find the light of life. Father, change our hearts and don't give us churchianity. Lord, set our hearts on fire that we might be the people who are the God people, the people who bring the light to where we are. And help those tonight, Father, who right now are thinking about their own darkness to find the light you offer. For I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Very good. Now, one of the things that we've been doing recently is to have a Q&A after the sermon. And I didn't tell you beforehand, but I'm kind of hoping you're getting the flow of this. So I'm wondering, do you have any questions arising from tonight's sermon? Yes, Darren.
some movement. All right. <laughs> Michael uh, did some wonderful actions to help the kids remember um, the, uh, the memory verse, which was John 8, 12 on the camp. And uh, Jesus apparently said, I am the light of the world. I think, is that what you're looking for, Darren? All right. More like this. Very good. Um, I hope the people listening on the podcast have enjoyed that question, and I thank you for it, Darren. Thank you. That's, uh, that's great. Are there any other questions? Yes, Annabelle. Yes. It is. Uh, very good. Uh, thank you, Annabelle. Uh, Annabelle asks, why haven't I referred to Isaiah 53 um, in my sermon tonight? Uh, largely because I was preaching a sermon this morning that had less time and I wasn't going to unpack Isaiah 53. And you're getting a modified version of that tonight. However, uh, since you brought it up, uh, it is an incredible passage, isn't it? And it points us to the one who will come, who will be pierced for our transgressions and who will be raised to see the light of life. Uh, his descendants, uh, it says, uh, will see him. And so uh, Isaiah 53 is just one of these foundational passages in the Old Testament where we see Jesus laid out in advance. And I'm told, I'm not sure, but I'm told that it is uh, not encouraged for Jews to read Isaiah 53 under a particular age. And I've seen an amazing YouTube clip, which you should go home and find at night, um, which is some Jews for Jesus guys going around Jerusalem, inviting Jews, Orthodox Jews, to read with them Isaiah 53 on the street and just see if they just say to them, hey, who do you think this is talking about? Without fail, they say Jesus, which is extraordinary. Yes, question. There you go, helpful information. So in, interesting to note, so in the lectionary reading in the synagogue, it's avoided. That's extraordinary, isn't it? It does say something that you would go out of your way to exclude it. I think you could, if you were really confident, you'd put it in and just hope everyone reads past it. Actively excluding it shows, I think, you acknowledge its power. Mm, thank you, that's a great additional piece of information. Are we done? Great, happy to chat over uh, supper. Uh, I hope, thinking about the darkness about personal reality about and morality about other religions helps you as you go and have a chat, being the light where you are, that you might be able to point out perhaps some of those flaws and that you might be able to be the light where you are. Thanks, Jeff. I'll hand back to you.